Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Welcome to season four of the Queen of the Sciences podcast. Dad, can you believe we are on year number four? It is 2022. Yes, uh, time flies, especially when you're having fun, right? Or when you're locked inside for two years straight. Depends on your perspective. <laughs> so anyway, we thought to start off this new year full of hope for better things, we would talk about the Eighth Commandment in the context of a cancel culture. Now, first things first, which Eighth Commandment are we talking about? Because we know untold numbers of American Protestants number them the wrong way by <laughs> taking out the graven image one and making it separate from the First Commandment. Ugh, you benighted souls. Catholics and Lutherans like us know better that the Second Commandment is... You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and that there are two coveting commandments at the end, which means when we say the Eighth Commandment, we mean, Dad, take it away. You shall not bear false witness. By the way, did you just skirt the edge of violating this commandment with your discourse about other Christians other than us Lutherans and Catholics? No, never, Dad. I was bearing entirely accurate witness against them. I see. <laughs> well, why don't, Dad, why don't you start us off on this uh, topic first by just talking about the Eighth Commandment itself, its historical context, and why it is still important for us Christians. I think that's just uh, good to start off that way because so many uh, uh, American Christians tend to take the commandments in such an individualistic way, uh, and they don't realize that all of the second table of the commandments uh, have to do with social institutions, with one exception that I'll mention in a moment. But sex, marriage, and the family are treated by the commandments to honor parents and against uh, adultery. Uh, uh, the institution uh, of life itself, uh, the right to life, uh, security, uh, is protected by the commandment against uh, murder. The economy is protected by the commandment against stealing, and it's the law court that's protected by the commandment against false testimony. And we know that uh, going back to ancient Israel, from early times, the elders of the village would sit at the village gate where they would uh, hear cases and render justice and listen to testimony. And this is the situation in life where, to which the uh, Eighth Commandment is being addressed. The only commandment that is different in that respect is the commandment against coveting. And here you really do have a focus on the individual heart and uh, struggling with the sinful desires of greed and envy. But all the other uh, commandments protect the institutions of social life. Uh, we know, as you said at the end of last season, how easily systems can be gamed. And of course, uh, gaming the institutions of justice by false testimony is one of the original forms of gaming the system. And still very much present. If there were no perjury possible, then um, 
legal procedures would unfold very differently than they often do. And we are kind of up against a wall, legally speaking, if people lie and you cannot prove or force them into uh, giving up their lies. So then what? So it does. I think the, the point you're making here is that socially speaking, the legal process breaks down if people do not tell the truth in the context of a court of law. Right. And, and that the good functioning of an institutions of law and justice depend on social trust. And when these institutions lose legitimacy and everybody feels uh, broadly feel that the system is being used or gamed, as you said, uh, uh, then the, there's a real social breakdown, which reflects the breakdown of social trust. And then uh, it's just, can you get away with the lie? And how outrageous of a lie can you get away with? Right. You, you can see that, too, that if, if there's just a, a widespread cultural or social habit of, of lying anyway, you know, if, if we, uh, on you know, on the individual level do indeed, you know, start with fibs and white lies and then just kind of see what we can get away with, how far we can push it, that will just keep growing. I, I always think of uh, Jesus saying, whoever is faithful and little will be faithful and much. Like if you want the courts of the land actually to prosecute justice based on truth telling in that setting, then it starts with, with you and me individually being always as truthful as we possibly can be, even in our perfectly private interactions. There is a, a, a golden thread connecting those two things to each other. Absolutely, Sarah. And that, that's why the doctrine of justification, which is also a forensic meta metaphor, you know, deriving from the situation of the law court and giving testimony or witness when you're called uh, to the stand, uh, why the doctrine of justification really penetrates to the heart of our human predicament, because the profoundest temptation to deception uh, and self-deception is when you are yourself put in the dock, uh, especially put in the dock by the Lord who searches and judges the heart. And there the effort to scapegoat, blame others, tell lies about your culpability and so forth is uh, doggone near irresistible. Yeah, well, that's great. Let's circle back to imputation at the end, because I think we'll, we'll see it in a, an even sharper focus by the time we get there. So it seems self-evident, of course, that we we want the Eighth Commandment to be kept at all times. So as so far as that goes, I have no problem. But I thought we, I'd kind of launch us into a deeper discussion, bridging over into cancel culture, with a certain uneasiness or tension I've always felt with Gasp Luther's explanation of the Eighth Commandment in the small catechism, which, of course, I memorized when I was a kid and have been through with my own son and parishioners many times since. And um, essentially, he, he, you know, he ends off his explanation saying to always put the best construction on everything, or in another translation, explain your neighbor's actions in the kindest way, or in my own translation, always assume the best about them. That's your neighbor's. And that is the thrust of what he's trying to get out here is that your starting point for judging your neighbor's actions should always be giving them the benefit of the doubt, making the best case for what they did under the circumstances. 
And um, there was a time when I was young and very naive when I thought this was beautiful. And of course, because, you know, I, I could only assume that bad things said about people were indeed false witness. And then I came into adulthood and the sheer brutality of the world finally penetrated the the uh, uh, pleasant childhood that I had had. And I realized, wow, a lot of people do really awful things. And so is there an expiration date or is there a, a this far and no further with this um, put the best construction on everything? What if there really isn't a best construction? And so I guess I sort of was uh, have long felt this tension between the command to truthfulness knowing the limits of our own knowledge and that even the best attempts to be truthful can just lack from uh, complete knowledge. But at the same time, I get, began to wonder how much is putting the best construction on everything actually a cover-up job? Is it enabling? Is it actually reinforcing someone's bad behavior because you keep covering up for them over and over again? I mean, this is like classic in uh, addiction systems, right? Inside of families. So, um, yeah, so let's let's just start from there and, and go forward. Um. Yeah, that's very good, Sarah. I agree we should discuss that. But I, I, I have a kind of a different uh, experience of this commandment. Uh, I'd like to mention first before we pursue the questions you just laid out and some that I want to add to it. Um, I've always loved Luther's explanation of this commandment. Uh, it uh, you know, as I grew up and uh, became better educated, I began to understand that he was commending what we could call a hermeneutics of charity as opposed to the hermeneutics of suspicion. And uh, this is kind of how the issue is posed in, in 20th century uh, philosophy, uh, hermeneutics of charity, that is to say, to assume the best about uh, a text that you read, an, uh, um, a thinker that you are uh, debating, um, uh, a neighbor that you're experiencing, interpret uh, their behavior in the best possible light. Uh, take them at their best, not at their worst. Uh, the, the hermeneutics of suspicion, on the other hand, would be one that says, the whole system is a system of mendacity. The whole system is systematically telling lies. Everyone is caught up in a web of deception and self-deception. And so you get maxims like follow the money. Carl uh, 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 Maxim, Marx uh, asked the, the question, cui bono, to whose benefit uh, any, anything is being said. So treat any statement with the suspicion that it is an ideological pretext for an assertion of power. So that's the Scylla and Charybdis, Sarah, that uh, we're confronted with in this situation, the hermeneutics of charity, which seems to set us up to be sucker-punched by cheats and deceivers, uh, and the hermeneutics of suspicion on the other side, which reduces everything to a fistfight, finally. Um, as a young intellectual, I just want to say a little bit more about this. I really felt strongly about the hermeneutics of charity because I saw so much bad uh, work in the fields of theology and philosophy 
which took opposing opinions at their absolute worst. They'd constructed a straw man with the most nefarious uh, motivations uh, and and then uh, took that straw man down with a flourish of power and brilliance and all that kind of thing. And and I was disgusted by that. And I've always felt, uh, especially later in life, Sarah, when I got in, interested in the ecumenical dialogues, to, to read the opposing position, the traditional opposing position, in the best possible light, to take it at its best, and see that uh, if you could identify the concern of the opponent and articulate that concern in such a way that your own concern and the opponent's concern could possibly converge so that tradi- traditional polemical statements could be um, reformulated in a way that no longer absolutely contradict each other but permit greater degrees of uh, fellowship and uh, reconciliation. So I was that's that's the how the Luther's explanation of the eighth commandment kind of played out uh, through my early career, and then we had the shock, and I know you've had this shock too, of discovering how the hero in our theological world, Martin Luther, discredited his own teaching in the eighth commandment by his failure to live up to his own insights there, and. Uh, categorically uh, besmirched Pope, peasants, and Jews with the most vile invective. So, should we cancel Luther? If not, why not? How do we live when the teacher of the law, our teacher of the law, has in fact failed to live in the light of his own teaching of the law, at least in these respects. So there you've got it. The hermeneutics of charity and Martin Luther descended into the hermeneutics of suspicion without remainder. Now what? Yeah. <laughs> and that raises all sorts of, of impossible alternatives. So, you know, we both know the, the kind of person who will cover up for Luther and excuse anything he did because he's our hero. There's the kind of person who will vilify Luther and there's nothing redeeming there because everything he said is fatally compromised by his errors. The problem is that it doesn't take very long to realize that there are no safe heroes anymore. And maybe that is also the uh, the jolt of coming out of the idealism of early youth into the hard maturity of adulthood. But, uh, you know, even think about Moses, who who was the, uh, you know, the the premier anti-idolater who spoke truth to power with Pharaoh, who got the people out of Egypt, who bore with them all this time, who met God face to face and knew supremely better than anyone what it meant to be God's servant. And then, you know, the the Old Testament records him making this fatal mistake of taking credit where he ought not to with the result that he is not allowed to come into the promised land. He 
dies on the mountain overlooking it um, and alone. No one even knows where he's buried, according to the story. So um, <laughs> there's there's just no end to these things. And, you know, not just Luther. My husband, Andrew, is a scholar of Bartolome de las Casas. Um, and one of the reasons he was attracted to and fascinated by him is because Las Casas was really the first um, canon lawyer and theologian of the Spanish conquista to own up to what the Spanish were doing to the native population and how absolutely evil they were and how inexcusably evil they were. And he spoke out against it. He actually uh, put the entire conquistador population under the ban of excommunication until they reformed their evil ways. Uh, Some people credit Las Casas with founding the modern concept of human rights, um, especially for people outside of Christendom. Las Casas kind of moves the argument forward by defending them. But guess what Las Casas' solution to the problem of abusive labor uh, practices regarding natives was? He said, well, we have all these African prisoners of war who are clearly Muslims and therefore enemies of Christ. Why don't we start importing these Africans and make them do the labor in the Americas instead? So the very same person who articulated and defended the rights of indigenous people and may have given us human rights is also the person who came up with the idea for black slavery in the Americas. Holy cow, what do you do with that? Well, that's why... That's why my scholar intellectual husband was attracted to the problem. And you can say the same thing, as we've said before, for Thomas Jefferson. How did the architect of governmental freedom live with himself and his slaves? I mean, it's just the the more I look at Jefferson, the more I'm just bewildered at how this man kept both things in his life at the same time. And yet he did. And the same thing with Luther. How did the person who so powerfully articulated that it's God's choice of us over our choice of God summarily dismiss so many people out of the company of salvation and who gave us the explanation of the Eighth Commandment could be so brilliant in his invective vilifying others? It staggers the imagination. But maybe that is short-sightedness about our own hearts. I don't know. Well, I think one of the insights that you can use uh, actually from some of the uh, social critical social theorists is that uh, oppression uh, and uh, let's just use their terminology for a minute. Oppression is multi-layered. So the statement came into currency in the last number of years that, well, that's a very layered issue. And by layered, this metaphor of being layered they meant all sorts of um, uh, so injurious social relationships lie on top of each other. So the African-American laborer might be exploited at work, but he comes home and acts like a bully and exploits his wife and abuses his children, right? So on one level, he's oppressed, but on another level, he's an oppressor. That's just you know, one example. Uh, uh, so, or, uh, uh, then you could multiply a, a million others. I think it was largely the the African American women, the so-called womanist uh, thinkers and uh, theologians, who who uh, really uh, pushed this idea of, of having a, a multi-dimensional analysis of so forth. And I think that. The, the the this is also called intersectionality uh, by some of these people in that they have various strategies about how to deal with that. But I think the insight, 
here theologically is that original sin is multidimensional, and you don't ever clearly emerge from the sinfulness of the human situation until the kingdom of God comes with the resurrection, uh, which, uh, which promises that we shall be changed. Uh, and that as long as we are in this struggle uh, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, as long as we live, there are going to be facets and dimensions of our social relationships that are sinful and Yet for us, even who have uh, uh, in principle repented and turned towards the kingdom of light, we will still have blind spots and we will not be able to see the ways objectively that we participate in structures of malice and injustice. So, so far as that goes, sure. And actually, I think getting to an appreciation of the layeredness of our dual oppressor and oppressed status and our uh, blind spots and sinfulness, like that would be a step in the right direction for where our culture is at right now, because actually we've retreated from that layeredness back into the very binary good, bad, you know, evil, righteous, that's it. And the the evil are simply to be canceled. So that's the, the growing um, trend or term that we use now is the cancellation of people when it's proven that they have said something unacceptable. Um, there does seem to be also a trend that the cancellation accompanies what um, I would often consider to be frivolous charges leveled against them. So uh, famously, J.K. Rowling, who um, herself is a survivor of um, abuse at the hands of um, a man uh, argued against allowing trans women into shelters for battered actual women. Uh, yes, I can get canceled for saying actual women there, but I'll, I'll take my risks along with rolling um, because she realizes it puts the actual women at risk from the women who are not actually women, but saying that they are women. And for defending the vulnerability of battered women, she was widely canceled and vilified. Of course, being the author of the Harry Potter books gave her a certain amount of resilience, so she still has a lot of fans. But there are plenty of people who are much lower down the food chain who didn't even know that they were walking into something explosive and then had, you know, the Twitter mob turn against them, lost their job, had their reputations permanently destroyed, um, often, again, accompanied by incomplete knowledge. And this seems to be a socially acceptable form of public discipline now. It just, that it staggers me because I remember even when I was in high school and we read the Scarlet Letter, which of course was meant to make us all think that Puritans were just horrible people. You know, we were basically canceling the Puritans for their shunning and shaming ways. But it was one of those crazy things from the past that just can't happen here. And now it's just like we are tagging Scarlet Letters on everybody left, right, and center and just putting them outside the pale of human discourse. Course. Dad, how did this happen? Where, how did we get here from there? Are we still just Puritans after all? Yeah, I, you know, I think, Sarah, it's from the theological point of view, uh, you bump up against the reality of original sin uh, uh, throughout life's experience, and you can't avoid it. You experience it in these multidimensional ways. But if you do not have a vigorous uh, and clear perception 
of the radical grace of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak and yet sinners, Christ gave himself uh, for us. If you do not have that radical perception of God's grace, which justifies the ungodly, if you don't have that, you're not going to handle this uh, awareness of sinfulness very well. You're going to want all the more fanatically to, uh, to abandon the, the insight into the multi-layeredness uh, of, of social injustice and one's own participation in it, and you're going to want to create a Manichaean, children of light versus the children of darkness kind of scenario. And this is then a life and death battle, and in uh, war, it's kill or be killed. Hence, cancellation culture has made its emergence in our day. You can discover sin, but if you don't discover sin in the light of grace, you become a more fanatical sinner as a result. I think that's really important that what you said, though, is that actually it was, first of all, the doctrine of sin that was missing, that there became this uh, maybe cultural sort of myth that, I don't know, maybe from the 60s flower children onward, that we're all basically good people and we all basically want the same same good things and we're all basically righteous and just. And I, I think as much as anything, maybe what happened was a discovery that not everybody is good <laughs> and and not everybody actually does act honorably or want the right thing, and maybe even more terrifyingly, that we don't all perceive the, the good in the same way and are pursuing the same good. And if you, again, have, a, as I've said before, a cheap notion of tolerance instead of a rich notion of toleration, then that gets really scary really fast. Sure. But I, I think the two have to go together. You have to have come into your discovery of what people are really like with a robust doctrine of sin. And then the way you deal with it is with a robust doctrine of grace. But you have to have both of those in place. Yeah, the only quibble I would have with what you said, which is right on, is that I don't think it's all that current. Uh, Already in the 19th century America, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, famous for her uh, novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, which awoke the conscience of so many abolitionists in that period of time, uh, dismissed the entire legacy of theologian Jonathan Edwards, because of his strong doctrine of original sin, with the famous words, I shall not tolerate such an insult to my heavenly father, as to think that his children are born into original sin. (laughs) Wow. And this is someone who, like, perceives slavery clearly and is fighting against it, and yet she won't tolerate a notion of a strong doctrine of sin. Well, yeah, because it's, again, you know, if you think that something like race, race-based slavery is going to be simply abolished by the awakening of people to its immorality, it took a civil war to abolish the institution, and that even against the express intentions of the North. Uh, and Lincoln said repeatedly, I'm not fighting this war to emancipate the slaves, but to save the Union. And in his second inaugural address, he said, that was my idea. God had a different idea, the emancipation of the slaves. And then it took another hundred years 
to face up to the enduring legacy of, of racism from the days of slavery with the civil rights movement. And today we still haven't fully mastered this problem in the United States, maybe not even close to fully mastered it. Anyway, that's uh, I, I think that we can't gloss over the past here, Sarah, and I think there's really interesting things to look back, especially over the Christian theological past that have to do with this issue of cancel culture. Because after all, the ban, the inquisition, excommunication, burning heretics at the stake, all that is part of Christian history and in the long historical background of cancel culture. Don't you agree? Uh, yes, though those are so often and so cheaply invoked that it always kind of bugs me. But you you are not one to invoke such things cheaply. So why don't you explore those connections in a non-cheap way for our listeners? Yeah, I agree with you that, that there's, there, again, that's a cancellation tactic. I'm going to raise Luther's tirades against the Jews to cancel Luther. I'm going to raise uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, cheating on Lady Bird in order to discredit Johnson's war policy. I mean, you, you, just, you can go down this rabbit hole a gazillion different ways. Okay, um, we have to go back into a time of history when Christian history to the New Testament when the ban was a form of sustaining the social cohesion and group identity of the vulnerable, fragile little Christian communities. These were weak communities that did not have, um, um, or in any way, in any case, had religiously renounced the use of violent exclusion or coercion. Uh, in a softer form, uh, I would say that, that the ban is a kind of a soft form of coercion. It's the shadow side of the freedom of association. So the early Christian community breaks into the Greco-Hellenistic world, and it's calling individuals out of their previous uh, civic and social and religious associations and into the new community in which there's neither uh, Greek nor Jew, ethnicity no longer counts, slave nor free, economic uh, relationships are passe, uh, not even singled and married, uh, uh, but all have become children of God in Christ, and they are to now in this new community bear one another's burdens. So that's, that is a, yeah, an almost impossibly, uh, from a human point of view, it's almost an impossibly idealistic project a very vulnerable new way of new being in the world. And how was this new being to sustain itself uh, in the midst of a hostile if, uh, a world? Well, the ban, uh, and St. Paul employs it in Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians, rather, uh, when he addresses the case of, of a certain man who is sleeping with, what was that, with his mother-in-law or something like that. Stepmother, I think stepmother. And uh, uh, Paul says, uh, you have to excommunicate him, you have to deny him communion, uh, you have to uh, expel him from the community uh, in order that he face up to the 
grievous harm that he is doing to the community and to himself, with the hope, of course, that this will bring him to his senses, to repentance, and then he can be uh, restored. Is well, this the passage at, where Paul says, I hand him over to Satan? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. In seminary, we used to say that as a joke a lot when we were irritated with people. I hand you over to Satan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it, it, for most of Christian history, it was not a joke. Uh, you know, yeah, right, right. It was pretty serious stuff. And the point I'm trying to make here is that we don't get rid of these dynamics, either by celebrating cancel culture there, we're finally doing it right and canceling the real people who need it, or, for that matter, getting our dander up and just denouncing it without any deep consideration of the long prehistory of cancel culture in our own Christian tradition. Right. Well, and I think the, the, the moral problem remains either way, because clearly if you have a culture that favors canceling or shunning, what you do very quickly is enable bullies and gaslighters. They are the ones who rise to the top and lead the charge. So that's no good. But if you have also a culture of pure forgiveness and acceptance, you actually create a new kind of moral hazard because no one's ever held accountable for what they do. You could actually be tempting people into being continually more corrupt because you're, you know, you're always restored, always forgiven, always brought back into the folds, and thereby in, in inadvertently encouraging the sin rather than stopping it. So there, again, another Scylla and Charybdis there. You, you can't just stop some kind of social pressure or social coercion. And in fact, it's much better to have it function socially and culturally rather than legally. I mean, it's better not to have these things solved by prison camps and gulags and um, firing squads, which uh, not so recent cultures, uh, present ones as well, have used as their, their form of discipline. Social coercion is better, but it is still liable to all of these incredible dangers. And it's still coercion. And if it's coercion, it's not the gospel. It's not the Holy Spirit. The medieval church... But we we're not asking for the Holy Spirit in public culture. I mean, I think that's one of the uh, important but painful breaks of Christendom, which is that we we cannot ask culture and state to be the church anymore. That, as you have said many times, is a failed project. But at the same time, I think we see clearly that all these very deep Christian legacies and tendencies and ways of thinking about the world, once detached from the church, still live in culture and state. And then because they don't have any of the corrective aspects, most of all, a living God <laughs> to deal with these things, then, you know, like I've said so many times, everything Americans do wrong is a Christian heresy, because that that is always our point of reference. Yeah, it, it's like we said earlier, it's layered, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's layered. Yeah. The medieval church maintained the fiction that it was not uh, involved in coercion. It was simply examining heretics and coming to a judgment that they were heretical. And then it was handing these convicted heretics over to the civil magistrate, to the state. And it was the state then who executed judgment, uh, punishment, execution uh, upon the uh, convicted heretics. Uh, so there was a kind of... Uh, uh, unholy collaboration between church and state uh, on this issue. Uh, and I think that's also a kind of a warning to us today uh, about employing 
you know, we we could probably deny that the church is using any kind of coercion in canceling uh, its own people, uh, but it can, in the process, be exposing them uh, to uh, to civil penalties. For example, in Scandinavia, I understand now that it's uh, it's a civil uh, uh, a, a civil um, uh, violation for anyone to express reservations about same-sex unions or anything along those lines. I, I think that's right. I, I could be wrong. And from the other opposite side of the political spectrum, I remember as a young person back in the late 1960s when neo-Nazis organized and wanted to march through Skokie, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, a predominantly Jewish uh, 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 community. And uh, they asserted their First Amendment rights uh, to uh, have this parade uh, and rally. And the American Civil Liberties Union actually defended the right of these neo-Nazis to march through the Jewish community. You remember, 1968, 69, when this happened, was not 20 years after the end of World War II. And so the offense... And I believe of, the lawyer who led the charge for the ACLU was himself a Jew, and he believed so strongly in the importance of the First Amendment. He said, yes, I will defend their odious right, no, their, their right to say odious things in public, their good right to say odious things in public. Yeah, and but Sarah, at that time... I have to admit, I was not sympathetic with the ACLU stand. I was thinking, you know, even at that time, that uh, uh, you have a right to, to, to protest policies of the state, but you have no right to offend your neighbors deliberately and provocatively. So if the neo-Nazis wanted to march down to City Hall and demand uh, uh, ghettos for Jews, that's one thing, but to provocatively march through a Jewish community just to stick it to them, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I, at that time I found that uh, beyond the pale. I probably still do feel that way. The, uh, you know, the only reason I, I would feel differently is not obviously because I have any sympathy whatsoever, but it's because it's always the question of where does it stop and who makes the judgments. And I see frightening evidence that the uh, the suppression of of uh, free speech does not stop with the odious stuff. Uh, it, it just keeps going. And that's the original idea behind defending the right to articulate odious speech, even in public, even with the deliberate desire to offend because the there's actually the social blowback of doing that is supposed to be where where it's dealt with and if you don't deal with it and don't allow it you know to be aerated enough to be blown back against then it will become a legal procedure and then the legal procedure will gradually creep and take over more and more ground so uh I, I probably would fall much harder on in the defense of odious speech because not because of the odious speech, but because of the consequences of silencing it legally rather than socially. Right. Yeah. And I guess generally I would favor social can't social social shaming over civic penalties. 
I think. So did we just that, endorse cancellation there, Dad? <laughs> I know that's what I'm. I'm trying to get at some of the dilemmas, the deep dilemmas we face in this respect. The reform. Just one last thought about the Christian past here before we move on. We should talk a little bit about the Reformation itself. So Martin Luther is excommunicated as a heretic in 1521 and lives the rest of his mortal life under the constant threat of being arrested and burned at the stake. So this um, abuse of power in, in the eyes of the Lutheran Reformation made a pretty profound impression. And the way Luther and Melanchthon basically handled the issue was to, they, uh, they uh, distinguished between what was called the greater ban and the lesser ban. And the greater ban was when you hand uh, someone over to the state for civic punishment. And the lesser ban was when the church, the pastor of the church, uh, the elders of the church and the pastor publicly excommunicated someone for scandalous behavior that was harming the community. And they maintained the lesser ban, but rejected the greater ban, at least in principle. We know that that wasn't always followed through on. Uh, uh, well, that was a, a, a humane compromise, but it still doesn't resolve any of the uh, problems or dilemmas we inherit in this regard. Okay, that's all what I wanted to say about the Christian past. All right. Well, let's let's try then as we're getting into the final third of our conversation here to talk about, well, first, let's get a handle on what we are really seeing and experiencing in American culture now as cancellation and what it is and why it's it's bad, obviously. But then also, what do we do instead? Because it's obviously addressing some kind of felt need for cultural and social discipline. And so far as that goes, we both made it clear by now, you, you need to have something like that, not least of all as a barrier against resorting to legal solutions for it instead. So it seems to me, I'll, I'll take a first stab at this, that um, cancellation as we experience it now, first of all, is greatly empowered by the emergence of the internet and especially social media because it allows for um, very short decontextualized assertions about the, the canceled person to fly with extraordinary speed and at zero cost to the mob, um, they can pile on. So it's one thing, I suppose, to um, see the adulterer in town and pick up a stone and actually chuck it at them. Like, however, however much of a depraved bully you are, you must feel something of the weight of what you're doing when you're throwing a stone at an adulterer. But there is a uh, long noted that... Um, one aspect of internet culture is because it is so weirdly anonymous while being so incredibly invasive of privacy at the same time, it, com it, it like strips away all of that human feeling or natural reserve. Uh, it takes away all your skin in the game. You will never be accountable for what you've done. You can just chuck a stone with, and you, you, you're chucking a stone with 30,000 other people who've all piled up on this one evildoer. So you get kind of all the rush of 
righteousness with um, absolutely no risk or cost to yourself. So I think that is one very distinctive feature of what we're seeing now in cancellation. It's empowered by this um, very anonymous and at the same time very privacy-invasing social technology that simply did not exist until very, very recently. Wow, Sarah, that's uh, really spot on. And you know what it makes me think of right away is the which um, historians of the Holocaust have studied and asked themselves the question, how could ordinary people have become these brutal killers? How, how could they have been so desensitized? How could they have lost touch with their own humanity to such a degree that they could systematically uh, commit uh, mass murder? Uh, th these are very weighty questions. And I think they're quite uh, uh, in, uh, congruent with the line of inquiry you just opened up. If social media permits us to uh, uh, desensitize ourselves to the victims of our uh, 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 persecuting rhetoric, uh, that's one of the ways, one of the psychological mechanisms by which persecution uh, can actually... Uh, um, get get off the inertia, the standard inertia that human beings feel, civilized human beings feel about killing. You know, right. how I have to de I have to dehumanize the other, I have to reduce them to a villain, a vile, vile person, in order to do this. And so, social media is facilitating this very act of profound uh, desensitization and enabling us to be virtual killers. Yeah, that's that's a really good way of putting it. But I also think it must tap into this this feeling, maybe it's the wearing out of the Whiggish narrative of progress. I mean, clearly people are really unhappy and really angry a lot of the time, and they're trying to figure out what's wrong. And I think a lot of people have either present or leftover remnants of a Christian call to righteousness. And so it, it's like, I'm guessing it must be some sort of brief fix on both your own anger and despair and your sense that things ought to be better than they are. If you can just briefly come across, can you believe this person said or did this outrageous thing? And it doesn't matter that you don't have the whole context and your 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 ire is aroused so quickly that you don't bother to find out the whole context. I mean, so many of these stories of people who have been canceled and I mean, even to the point of losing their jobs um, or leaving the country. Um, I've heard cases like that where the social attack was so great. Once you hear the whole story, it changes everything. But that's kind of the point is that cancellation is is so disinterested in the whole story. So what is it? It's it's serving this uh, lost pursuit of righteousness, but somehow filling in this this anger and emptiness. Um, so I, I don't know. I guess it's like we were saying earlier on. We've lost our our doctrine uh, and awareness of original sin, and we're we're rediscovering it with this nasty kind of vengeance. Yeah, and I think people are so. I would just add one more thought to that. I think contemporary people, uh, their souls are so empty uh, and they're so out of touch with their own emotional lives uh, because of the way they cancel themselves constantly. Cancellation is, a, first of all, a, an inner project before it lashes out 
and becomes an outer project, so you're living like a coiled spring. You know, you're living with a great deal of tension. And and so when you finally get a, a trigger so that you can go on a righteous rant and release all that inner tension, boy, that's a high. That's a high, and it allows you to per- perpetuate the self-deception uh, that can't that 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 you are a righteous person when in fact you are yourself uh, filled with tension about the very things that you are uh, so uh, outwardly angry at. Wow, that is very deep. Yeah, you're right. Cancellation is always starting in the soul. And then, you know, what's interesting, too, is we see that it, it kind of flips. There is like a, a pre-cancellation cancellation and then a post-cancellation cancellation, which is that once you see that your peers, even if they're the imaginary peers of social media, have implicitly endorsed or explicitly endorsed this method of social control, then you quickly realize how fast you are going, you are at risk of becoming canceled yourself and then become, begins the massive process of self-editing, which then leads massively to more and more dishonesty, which can only increase this, this coiled spring. I love that image, dad, the tension inside of yourself. So there are more and more and more and more things that you are not saying that you see and feel and wonder about and need to explore. And some of them are really awkward and unacceptable, but if you let them out, you're going to get canceled too. And so it's, uh, maybe it will express itself in more and more cancellation of others because you you can't stand it that they're saying the things that you don't dare to say yourself. But it could also be just a continual loss of touch with reality because you refuse to acknowledge it, which thereby then empowers the bullies we talked about earlier, the ones who love to execute the social ban and get off on it. And they do it for its own sake, not because they're actually warriors of righteousness. So it's just the thing metastasizes in every possible direction. Agreed. Yes, it, it, it's a part of the spiritual poverty of contemporary people, this whole phenomenon that we're experiencing. Where, And I, by spiritual poverty, what I mean is that one lacks the basic ex- Christian experience of seeing oneself in, from the perspective of God's judgment. Uh, the whole Lent, Lenten experience of of self-examination in the light of the law, the divine law of love, and recognizing uh, what a failure one is uh, to be the true human being that God created you to be. That's almost an impossible or unbearable self-examination if it's not immediately derived from the great act of Christ's love for us while we were yet weak and still sinners, who loved us and gave himself for us. You know, if you don't have that self-examination in the light of the uh, radical grace of God in Christ, you can't bear it. You just can't bear it. And so when you 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 bump into the reality of sin. You have to externalize it and scapegoat it uh, to release the inner tension, the coiled spring. Yeah, right. 
Wow. Okay, so let's talk. I mean, obviously, the takeaway for all you out there is don't cancel other people. <laughs> but uh, be- besides the obvious of not piling on to the Twitter mob, um, you know, wh- what do we do to start unpeeling this um, and and turning it back? I mean, for me, the, what makes it most urgent is not just, you know, the awful consequences on the people who are so publicly and shamefully canceled, but that um, it's going to turn into a legal process at this rate. <laughs> you know that that has to be prevented at all costs because that's that's where the gulags and the camps come from. Um, but uh, and the social mechanism feeds into it. So how can we start bearing witness in our own lives or even in our own minds about resistance to this cancel culture and finding a better way forward? Well, yeah, I mean, there's certain. Christian basics here. Love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, do good unto them that despitefully abuse you. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, these are just, to me, these are just theological uh, sine qua non. You know, you just can't even begin to think about this issue until you think about the love for opponents, the love for enemies, the love for people who should be divinely canceled, that nevertheless God finds and seeks and finds the way uh, to love in Christ. That would be have to be the starting point. And it's a spiritual starting point. You have to begin with that in your own soul. Uh, so yes, don't cancel others, but begin by reckoning with God's right to totally cancel you. <laughs> right. And nevertheless, he finds the way to justify you. So I guess for me, the the pain point here is not um, with extending mercy to the canceled, because that uh, obviously we wouldn't be having this conversation at all if we didn't basically feel that way. I guess for me, and this circles back to my initial problem, put the best construction on everything. It's the cancelers that I have the biggest problem with and the bullies and the gaslighters and those who love to shame and ban and blare their righteousness by destroying the lives and reputations of others. And that I I can't put the best construction on that except maybe to try to say in some way this lamb is so lost and so alienated from God that I have to take that as my starting point for pushing back and naming the sin and confronting the sin with as much truthful speech as I can. But that's about as far as I go. I I can't, uh, the cancelers themselves, I can't put the best construction on any better than that. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well, again, let's, let's try to take it back to biblical basics. When Jesus is on trial, before the Sanhedrin, he was silent. He didn't respond or answer uh, any of the false accusations. Uh, he, he bore his, the false accusations in silence uh, and committed himself uh, spiritually, committed himself uh, to the keeping of God against the unjust keeping of the court that was falsely accusing him and convicting him. Uh, and I think that in some cases, that is, is exactly what's left to us. According to the Gospel of John, uh, uh, Jesus bore witness to Pontius Pilate, and he told the truth to Pontius Pilate, who could not receive the truth. 
<laughs> what is truth was Pilate's response, right? So when you are the victim of the politics of denunciation, when uh, others are ganging up on you, falsely accusing you in order to cancel you, I think, you know, you can make the simple testimony to the truth, but that's as far as you go, because if if you go any further, you simply empower the, denun the further empower those making denunciations. So you neither, you neither... Uh, defend yourself uh, defensively, uh, nor do you apologize and back down. You, exactly. you you have spoken. Your your word has been your word. You stand by it. See that that I I get, but that's from the perspective of of aligning myself with being the canceled person. What I maybe what I'm thinking of, and this this maybe brings it a little closer to home with me, is that Christian tradition has vilified those who canceled Jesus, namely the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, primarily for some reason we got over our hatred of the Romans, maybe because the Roman Empire came around in the end. So I can see how devastating devastatingly awful, the legacy of refusing to forgive and uh, the, the ones who slandered and denounced Jesus has been in the history of Christian anti-Judaism. But I, I think that's exactly where the problem is for me. It's not how do I stand up to cancellation should that come. Actually, Dad, I just want to say, I can't believe you've never been canceled. Like, what's wrong with you? It seems like it should have come. <laughs> Somebody out there, please cancel Dad. Let's uh, let's have some firsthand experience and just get to the other side of it. But, you know, like, it, it's actually, w w as me, neither canceled nor canceller, how am I to behave with the cancelers? <laughs> what do I do there? What is my civic and neighborly responsibility towards the cancelers themselves? It's clear to me what I should do for the canceled, but not for the cancelers. Yeah, and I think here, here again are a couple of really sensitive points. Uh, you've got to get your own ego out of it if you've been the victim of cancellation. Uh, and in order to properly resist the cancelers, the persecutors, and so forth, you, it's got to be motivated out of uh, the cur courage to tell truth uh, from God and out of love for your neighbors who could also be victims. It's just like fighting a just war where you're willing to put your body on the line to protect your neighbor from aggression. Uh, that's got to be spiritually where you're coming from. And so it's not a matter of vindicating yourself against the false accusations. It's rather a matter of confronting the persecutors with their sin. Uh, showing them their that's what the genius of Martin Luther King was, that uh, that civil disobedience for King was not being a doormat and letting the uh, perpetrators walk all over you. It was confronting them in a nonviolent way which would expose to them their own sins, their own sinfulness. And so it wasn't being a doormat at all. It was exposing them to the injustice of their laws, the way Jim Crow had canceled the African-American population in the South for 80 years at that time. Right. So the, the, the moral call for us is to defend the canceled and to 
find the ways to confront nonviolently the cancelers from the perspective that they are also made in the image of God and that they are lost and alienated children of God who don't have any way probably of dealing with their own sinfulness and have no perception of their own gracedness. Um, something like that? Yeah, and, you know, you can get deeper and deeper in this issue. The reflections of Dietrich Bonhoeffer about his interrogation by the Gestapo and and how he had to lie in order to try to save the lives of others in the conspiracy and so forth. Uh, you know, the, there's a, a lot of... Uh, a lot more to discuss here, but I would say short of a ex- situation as extreme as Bonhoeffer's, what I'm trying to get at here is that um, um, we have to show the cancelers that they're behaving uh, in ways that they themselves, if they could get some distance on it, would surely condemn and reject. Uh, we've got to get them to see themselves as others see them, uh, help, help them to see themselves. Uh, uh, they think in the name of a righteous cause they can persecute. Don't they realize that this is makes them the children of the Inquisition? Well, maybe they admire the Inquisition now. <laughs> but I guess your point is that, that you don't you don't fix a canceller by canceling them. <laughs> no, don't you don't. Also cancel the cancelers. But but I guess what also what you're saying and I guess this is what I have learned is that you always have the option to tell the truth. You know, even if you can't talk anybody into or out of anything, you always have the option to bear witness to the truth as you see it. Aware of, you know, the consequences might be dire, but like what else do we have if we don't have the truth as we see it and if we just sit on it, it, you know, it, it festers and sickens inside of us. It has to be said. And we have the great examples of Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Václav Havel here. Solzhenitsyn bore witness to the truth by secretly researching and writing the massive documentation of the Gulag Archipelago, right? And, and in that way played an instrumental role in bringing down the Soviet Empire. Václav Havel, in that everyone should read his great essay, The Power of the Powerless, it's, a, it's crypto-Christian theology. Uh, I wrote an essay about this in a recent book on, on resistance. Uh, so, yes, truth-telling, you can always tell the truth, but you have to be spiritually prepared to suffer to suffer for the truth, to be a martyr in the way that Jesus before Pontius Pilate is a martyr, in the way that uh, Martin Luther King was a martyr. You have to be, you got to get your own ego out of it. You got to realize that you're fighting uh, in the righteousness of God for the righteousness of God, uh, and therefore that your cause is God's and not your own. You've, you've got to come to that realization. I don't think that means being a doormat at all. You know, in my own little life, I've made a lot of people angry at me for telling the truth about the sins of church and society. Uh, You have to be in that way a kind of a spiritually happy warrior, not a fanatic one trying to get vengeance on on people that you uh, have perhaps good reason to hate but rather that you're trying to break the cycle of hate and recrimination. 
That's great. That's great. Well, let's uh, close out now with um, just one last thought that occurred to me as we were talking about that. You you opened up with a comment on the Eighth Commandment's forensic setting, which, of course, puts a Lutheran in mind of forensic justification. So tell me, Dad, when God imputes righteousness to us on the basis of the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, is God bearing false witness to us, but in a nice way, <laughs> granting us righteousness that we do not possess and do okay. not deserve? Is that false witness on God's part? It could be. It could be nothing but a legal fiction. Um, um, and many uh, uh, people looking upon the Orthodox Lutheran doctrine came to that very conclusion. Uh and here again, I have to be a little bit wicked and, and make an, uh, an, a Lutheran self-critique here. The original teaching of Genesis 15, and Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness, taken up by Paul, is that God reckons faith as righteousness. Do you hear that? God reckons faith as righteousness. Okay. Faith is a transformation of the existing human self. Faith is something that is transformative. Faith is not saying, you sinner uh, to the core, totally uh, on your own, just as you are. You might be loved, but you're not justified by the fact that God loves you. You're justified by the fact that the love of God reaches, finds you, and transforms you into a person who believes, indeed, in spite of all, I am loved by God. That it is faith which justifies, and it is faith which is regarded, treated as righteousness. Now, what's the, what difference does this make? This is not the same as saying that God ignores your sinful being and simply winks his eye at your sinful being and says, uh, well, I can do whatever I want. I'm God, so therefore I'm going to treat you as righteous. That is indeed a legal fiction, which leaves us, in fact, dead in our sins. So I'm being critical of the Orthodox Lutheran doctrine of forensic justification as it's commonly understood. The difference is that up until the Augsburg, even to the apology of the Augsburg Confession, Luther and Melanchthon both taught that faith is regeneration. Faith is the new birth. Faith is the transformation of the human subject. And when they talked about imputation, they usually said the non-imputation of remaining sins. Not the imputation of Christ's righteousness, uh, as it was formulated later on, but the non-imputation of remaining sin. For the Luther of the treatise Freedom of the Christian, for example, faith is really the beginning of genuine righteousness because it gives God the glory that is God's due. That's justice. That's the justice that the sinner never gave God before, the glory that was his due for his incredible mercy, uh, and so forth and so on. So, no, the proper understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith is not uh, a legal fiction. 
because you can't even have faith except as the Holy Spirit grabbing hold of you and transforming you and crucifying you with Christ and raising you up to a new uh, existence in the community of Christ, living by faith, hope, and love. That was amazing, Dad. Thank you. <laughs> and I think that really points to then what we as as the faithful in Christ can do with regard to both both the canceled and the counsel, cancelers, which is not to condemn them and also not to excuse them, either way, leaving them right where they were. But we impute to them their full and compute, complete humanity, that they are made in the image of God and that they are capable of better. And we reach out to them and extend the offer of fellowship, costly and difficult in, in many cases, both for the canceled and the canceller. And it's in that act of, of imputative action and freedom on our part of, of neighborly love that maybe that is uh, in an analogy to what the Holy Spirit does, bringing the gospel to us, cracks through the shame of the canceled or the self-righteousness of the canceler and opens up a new possibility, which is the, the beginning of a new kind of social righteousness. And, um, and then we can not impute the worst motives to them, but because something has actually happened. It's not a, a pure declaration about nothing at all, but it's a real breaking in, a breaking through. If God declares it, it must be effective, and effective means transformative. So it, the idea of a purely declarative righteousness that does not transform the one to whom it's addressed. Well, of course, we've talked about this many times, Sarah, and it's the, the, absence, of the, doctrine, the absence of a lively doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the whole understanding of justification that's the deep culprit here. But you're right. I mean, just to get back to your, the point you were making, uh, whether it's the Twitter mob on the left or the Proud Boys on the right, right, in either case, the Christian, the genuine Christian bears the patient witness of divine love for real sinners and confronts these persecutors or would-be persecutors uh, in either direction. Whether or not that is effective depends on God's larger judgment of this society of ours and whether the whole thing needs to fall and collapse and be rebuilt. Uh, I certainly hope not. I pray not. I think we should work against that possibility. But I'm not God to make that judgment. So I'm saying to Christians who perceive the depths of the crisis that we are in, with these dynamics of cancel culture, to recognize that the only way out is to not be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. Uh, and we might not personally, uh, like Moses or Martin Luther King, we might not personally get, get to that promised land. And we might have to be the ones who suffer and live through uh, the collapse of the old order. I don't know. Nobody knows, but that's what we have to be prepared for. All right. Sobering but stirring words. Next time on the show, we will begin a two-parter on the Gospel of Luke. Yes, a happy change of subject. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. 
For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.